0: Thank you, George. I appreciate that introduction, that, that rather detailed introduction. If anyone wants to play Settlers of Catan with me later, they can look me up. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be back in Canada. I grew up in Canada. I'm a dual citizen, and uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to be in a place like this, too. It's, it's striking. I said to George when I walked in here, is this 60s? Yep early 1960s, it was very beautiful. And delighted to be with you of course. I'd like to jump right in and I'm gonna start with a familiar word from Jesus. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Now you'll know that when he said that he was referring to marriage, but I'm gonna take a little bit of liberty here because Paul did and he used marriage in Ephesians as a, a type of the church. And I'm gonna stretch this a little bit more to cover three other things that I believe we have tended to put asunder in uh, today, uh, in today's church, especially in the West, that the medieval church, I believe, and Lewis, kept together, and uh, George has already mentioned those three things, faith and reason, love and logic, and also the spiritual and the material. So today we're gonna talk about, um, in this session, uh, faith and reason. It seems to me that Christ followers today do tend to separate these, veering either into, on the one hand, pure reliance on faith that shuts off all reasoned inquiry into the things of God, or on the other, a rationalized modern substitute for faith that dismisses everything we can understand. Things like the Trinity or the resurrection or miracles of Christ. In today's talk, I'm gonna push back against both of those tendencies by exploring the story of how medieval theology used reason to understand important matters of faith as far as we can while protecting their essential mystery rather than to define that mystery out of existence to satisfy our reason. We'll look, among other things, at the Council of Chalcedon, which is just slightly pre-medieval, and then the teachings of the turn of the 12th century thinker Anselm of Canterbury. I also believe we tend to separate love and logic, and I'll mention these other two themes just in case uh, you, you might not be able to make it or might be interested in coming to the other two talks. Uh, we separate love and logic. I, sometimes think uh, we tend in one or the other of these directions just by who we are. We may be tempted to indulge in a kind of fuzzy-headed anti-intellectual sentimentalism on the one hand or a more cold and self-righteous argumentation on the other, love and logic. So in the next talk, I'm going to push back against those tendencies through an exploration of how medieval faith united robustly affective heart devotion and theologically informed inquiry. I'll hold up in that talk people like Peter Abelard and Bernard of Clairvaux and argue that quite contrary to modern stereotypes that pit warm-hearted monastics against cool-headed scholastics, we find in medieval faith in fact a unified path that drew both heart and mind to God and provided satisfaction for both loving desire and logical questioning. And then finally, the third theme uh, is the separation between the spiritual and the material. This is perhaps the one that really got me going on writing this book. I think we do often separate those two, courting either useless super spirituality and cultural irrelevance on the one hand or crass materialism and cultural captivity on the other hand. So in my third talk, I'm gonna push back against that disjunction too. And I'll show how medieval Christians honored the biblical stories of the creation and the incarnation through their sacramental understanding of the material world as neither spiritually irrelevant nor the source of ultimate value, but rather a good gift of God that can, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, lead us back to him as we live our daily and quite material lives. And in each of these talks, including today, I'm going to use uh, the quite medieval modern man, C.S. Lewis, as a guide, as a sort of docent back into this period. So again, the three items positively stated. Medievals kept faith and reason together. They used the gift of reason, but within the limits of mystery and community. They assume that while the story of salvation participates in the reasonableness of a rational God, nonetheless, we each still see through a glass darkly. So no individual Christian can know the thoughts of God clearly through the power of their own mind. This is why the medievals following the early church believe that God's Holy Spirit has worked through the whole community of saints, bequeathing us truth in tradition as well as scripture. Sometimes in talking with Protestant audiences, I say the T word. Tradition, we're sometimes a little uncomfortable with that. We have a sense the Reformation was about, if nothing else, pushing back against that. So we'll we'll discuss that a little. Then we kept uh, medieval's kept love and logic together. What I'm going to say there is very simply that um, medieval re- religion, like early uh, Christian religion, was always a heart religion even as it quested to understand the things of God. Sometimes in our classrooms, we tend to treat the early centuries of the church as if it was one abstruse theological discussion or argument after another and that uh, absorbed the councils and the bishops. And of course, that is a dimension, but it doesn't get quite to the heart of what was going on in the early church. And then of course, again, the spiritual and the material. I wanted to state this positively rather than negatively. I'll say here, following the logic of the incarnation, Medievals affirmed both the humanity of Christ and thereby the humanity of humanity. They assumed that being a Christian does not mean living on some spiritual plane. That may seem counterintuitive if you know a little bit about the medieval period, but I'll argue that that's true. But rather discovering the spiritual truths that come to us through and in turn shape us in the ordinary lives of our bodies in the material world, of our communal nurture, and social interactions, of our common human appetites and predilections and foibles, which is why, among other things, God empowers and guides us in the complexity, particularly of earthiness, and our inward character and moral actions. All right, so now as we begin this series, a few words on the project that they come from. George, thank you for introducing the, the book. Um, The full title, which is like something out of, I think, the 17th century or 16th century, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis. Some people wonder about the syntax there and think the forgotten age is our own. I'm talking about the Middle Ages. I started working on this book many years ago because I felt a kind of a lack in my own evangelical uh, Protestant experience. I love the evangelical movement for the clear-eyed message of sin and salvation that came to me through it and brought me into relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But when I went to the movement for help understanding life in the world, the material world, the cultural world, the world of marriages and workplaces and landscapes and cities and novels and movies and politics and science, I found too often that there was just no there there. I found, as James Davis and Hunter and Mark Knoll have found as well, that evangelicals are quite often absent from the places in the world that study to understand these things. In short, though evangelical Protestantism uh, does really well in a certain band of spiritual life and picks up a few issues of private and public morality to focus on and engage, it seems to ignore sometimes huge swaths of human experience. So when I went knocking on evangelical doors to ask how to live well in the world as a young adult convert while also living well in God, I too often found no one home to answer my questions. Why is this? Why has evangelicalism tended to strip away the world-embracing engagement and cultural fertility of earlier forms of the faith? For our museums are stuffed with the artistic and scientific artifacts of past Christian ages. When did the church withdraw? from those areas. Though we don't have time for the whole story of disengagement, I would argue that the distrust of culture started with those radicalized early reformers who tore down church art, smashed sacred statues, and nailed shut organs. And it intensified in the populist revivals of the American frontier, which reduced the rich story of salvation history sometimes to an altar call and promoted the unschooled to ministry without a day's training. In the book, I talk about the 19th century mother of the holiness movement, and thus grandmother of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements, a little-known figure named Phoebe Palmer, who preached a shorter way to God. American Protestants of Palmer's day were all about anything that could shorten the way to God, and a lot of what that involved was stripping away inherited traditions and ways of doing church. In the book, I also treat this whole question of evangelical anti-traditionalism with more nuance than I can do here. Despite my obviously critical approach to it here, I want to say that I affirm a lot of that impulse. I think there were certainly things that were broken in the traditions of the late medieval period that the the reformers addressed. But the basic term that I use when I'm talking about this in the book is immediatism. By immediatism, I mean that evangelicals have long believed that the most central thing we should know as Christians is that each of us can go directly, individually, and without any mediation from human leaders or from material sacraments or rituals to the throne of God. Evangelical immediatism takes, I think, two shorter ways to God. First, it says that we can experience him directly in worship no matter what forms we use for that worship. But, of course, the plainer, the more direct, the more popular and accessible, the better. The second form of immediatism says that we can understand him directly through reading the Bible, which communicates revelation to us clearly without complication or the need for traditional helps. In light of these two moves, all the traditions handed down to us are finally unnecessary. We don't need carefully crafted liturgies, confessional statements of doctrine, or well-worked out church polities or disciplines in order to worship God well. We don't need to read wise old theologians to interpret and understand the truths that God communicates so plainly in Scripture to anyone who cares to open a Bible. If you're in Bible classes, theology classes, You've seen that that's perhaps not the case. There are some complexities there. There's some some guides that we may need in order to interpret well and do so in community. In light of immediatism, we take it that God is simply not interested in mediating structures inside the church or traditions. And in a related logic, he's even less interested perhaps in the ordinary world of workplaces and cities and literature and science. He only wants individual hearts and minds to come to him and be saved. In the narrow and spiritualized faith of the immediatist, word and world are torn asunder. So a rhetorical question, the answer to which I'm fairly sure you can, you can gather. Is there any time in history when the church has kept together word and world, faith and reason, love and logic? Well, Really, I've already said it. The answer, I think, is so obvious that if we weren't willfully turning away and closing our eyes to it, it would smack us in the face. During the thousand years of the Middle Ages, some from around 500 to 1500 AD, the Christian tradition, while deeply committed, both to direct mystical encounter with God and to a clear understanding of scripture, also understood that our life with God is mediated through human art and artifice and wisdom, and indeed through every aspect of our lives in the world. And so along with their most more directly religious pursuits, medieval Christians lavished their attention on the ways of nature and culture. There is no such thing, of course, as a golden age. Medievals got some things wrong, even as they got some things very right. But they took such a strikingly earthy, practical, and at the same time deeply spiritual approach to being human in a God-made world, that if we just turn our faces again towards this age of faith and open our eyes, we may find that this forgotten age is a source of authentic renewal for us today. I've been nourished in my own faith by reading medieval authors, and part of the way I came to those authors was through reading C.S. Lewis, who I take to be, as I said, one of the most medieval modern authors. While many Christian leaders today remain more narrowly focused on souls and salvation and devotions and missions, all very important, taking their faith out into the world, as I say, only in a few perhaps issues. Lewis lived and taught, you know this if you've read him, especially his nonfiction, an everyday theology that engages the world and human nature and ordinary morality in a deeper, more practical, and more livable way. In Lewis, I discovered a spirituality of ordinary life that reveled in the things of nature and the things of culture, both for what they are in themselves and for how they point to God. And I had two questions. First, how can I get that? And second, how did he get that? Because again, as I look around at my church today, I often don't find this kind of theology or spirituality of ordinary life. I'm so glad that this series that was started by Brian Stiller has that in its crosshairs because I think that is absolutely vital for the church today. So here's the thing. I think the answer to the second question, where did he get that, leads us to the answer to the first, how can we get it? because Lewis got this sacramental view of ordinary things by immersing himself deeply in Christian tradition, especially the early and medieval parts of that tradition. And that's just exactly where we can get it to. As a professional medievalist, Lewis read medieval authors, well, professionally, but he also read them personally. And when he did, he became captivated by their holism of their way of seeing the world. It began to change the way that he saw and the way that he lived. In the engaging introduction to his weightiest scholarly tome, 16th century literature, okay, about like that. I have not I have it, but I haven't read it all the way through. Lewis observed that medieval spoke in one breadth of great universals such as justice, honor, and friendship, and in the next, of earthy particulars such as pigs, boots, and boats, with no sense of incongruity. For the medievals, spiritual and material, sacred and secular, interwove in one single, seamless, sacramentally charged world. And so it was too for Lewis, who whimsically characterized himself at his inauguration in the Chair of Medieval and Renaissance Studies at Cambridge in the 50s, not merely as a scholar of the medieval world, but also really as a medieval native as if he'd been born there and was just visiting the modern world. Before we move on, let's just descend one step deeper. Lewis got his holistic and world-embracing sacramental way of seeing and living from the medievals and so can we, but where did they get it? In doing the research for this book, I become convinced that medievals got their sense of the interwovenness of faith and reason, love and logic, and the spiritual and the material, justice and pigs from a powerful theological place. They got it from dwelling on the amazing fact of the incarnation. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity as a human being should blow our minds and change our lives. But in our hurry to reach the cross and the resurrection, we today are inclined to skip over this flabbergasting central fact of the Christian story. Think of this. What would it do to you if you lived in constant awareness of the historical fact that the greatest universal of them all, God himself, came down into the particular concrete, material, and cultural space of first century Palestine as a baby born in a cold, dark, dirty stable and then lived out the very same material, emotional, social, human life that you're living right now? I wanna suggest that if you did that, if you meditated daily on the stunning fact of the incarnation as so many medievals did, you'd never again see any part of your work life, your home life, or any other part of your life in this world as spiritually irrelevant or beside the point of your faith. And every part of your experience would become at least potentially a conduit and even a mediator to God. The whole argument of my book is that as we follow Lewis in reading and absorbing Boethius, Francis of Assisi, Thomas of Aquinas, Lady Julian of Norwich, The Canterbury Tales, Dante's Divine Comedy, every one of them available now in good English translations, we will find them soaked in this incarnational holistic worldview. And if we absorb this worldview from them, then we gain a new sense of how to live fully human lives, embracing every corner of our material and cultural world as the active arena of God's concern and God's work. We will come to see that working for IBM, bringing the neighbor kids to a ball game, reading a novel, painting a painting, serving on the PTA, researching microbes in a lab, of course, we could go on and on. In short, everything we do in our Monday to Saturday lives is, a single, single sacramental unity in which again, faith and reason, love and logic, the spiritual and material interpenetrate and uphold each other. Okay, so now let's jump into the first of our three pairs of once united things that have now been torn apart. Faith and reason. Let's start with our guide for the voyage, C.S. Lewis. Lewis was not a professional philosopher although that was his first love and actually his career intention. But by both his education and his native earnest curiosity, he was well prepared to pursue philosophical study, not as a game of abstractions, but the key to life. From his early reading in the classics, through his great philosophy study at Oxford, and on to his first teaching gig there, his first class was actually a brief one on philosophy, Lewis chose to follow the guidance of reason and perform numerous spiritual exercises in a genuine attempt to live according to what he thought was true. As he said, I was trying to find out the truth. Lewis carried out this philosophical journey in a manner both sympathetic to and influenced by his readings as a medievalist. In response to a question from the American publication The Christian Century, Lewis listed Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy as one of the 10 books that most influenced his philosophy of life. He found its philosophical argument a doorway or a philosophical preliminary into faith, the consolation was one of the most retranslated and reprinted books of the entire millennium of the Middle Ages. To acquire a taste for it, Lewis says, is almost to become naturalized in the Middle Ages. So Lewis sought wisdom through philosophy in ways characteristic of early and medieval people. And that wisdom led him on a path to Christianity. And he never stopped being a philosopher, even in writing his famous children's books. Professor Diggory's exclamation in The Last Battle comes to mind. It's all in Plato, all in Plato. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? A letter from Lewis to his friend Arthur Greaves gives an early glimpse of what would become Lewis's eager pursuit of medieval sources of theological knowledge. Here in the year before his conversion, we find Lewis articulating the beauty of Catholic theology as he describes his own first reading of Dante's Paradiso. He and Owen Barfield had taken a holiday week for intellectual fellowship, and each day they read both Aristotle's ethics and Dante's Paradiso, because that's what we do when we're on a holiday, right? Um, Lewis wrote to Greaves that the Paradiso felt to him More important than any poetry I have ever read, its blend of complexity and beauty is very like Catholic theology, which by which he means small c Catholic, right? The theology we've shared from the beginning. Wheel within wheel, but wheels of glory, and the one radiated through the many. After his conversion, Lewis followed up this traditional training and personal discipline with intensive reading in the church fathers and medieval theologians and spiritual writers. Again, a self-described dinosaur. Lewis the Christian came to see in logical positivism and other modern trends in philosophy, the kind of inhuman abstraction that speaks as though we do not have personalities or imagination. He tried to help his audiences think, both rigorously and imaginatively, along with the best ancient and medieval thinkers. Out of his appreciation for scholastic theology and spiritual theology of people like Julian of Norwich, Walter Hilton, and Thomas Ocampus, he sought not only to bring the ancient and medieval tradition of Christian thought alive again for his contemporaries, but also, importantly, to help them feel what it is like and know what it is like to think within that tradition. Lewis's appreciation for medieval theology took both an aesthetic and a logical form. He was a master rhetorician, the terror or inspirational leader, depending on who you asked, of the Socratic club at Oxford, an apologist and a public intellectual, as well as a literary figure with solid skills in many forms of fiction, poetry, and essay writing. Yet Lewis was alert to the tendency of rhetoricians to get carried away with their own rhetoric. He did not devalue reason and truth just because he excelled in imagination. We see this priority for truth in Lewis's defense of medieval scholasticism. In putting forward their own modern moral and literary agendas, the Renaissance humanists whose thought would feed the Protestant Reformation caricatured medieval scholastics as hair splitters who used atrocious Latin to argue obscure and irrelevant theological minutiae. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Were these fair characterizations of the medieval scholastic theologians and their arguments? Anything but, says Lewis. These are not the terms in which a new philosophy attacks an old one. They are unmistakably the terms in which, at all times, the merely literary man attacks philosophy itself. No humanist is now remembered as a philosopher. They jeer and do not refute. The schoolman, that is, the medieval scholastic, advanced and supported propositions about things. The humanist replied that his words were inelegant. In conclusion, Lewis argues, the war between the humanists and the schoolmen was not a war between ideas. It was, on the humanist side, a war against ideas. It is a manifestation of the humanistic tendency to make eloquence the sole test of learning. Having labeled the humanists Philistines and their movement Obscurantist, Lewis concludes that their new learning is also, sadly, a new ignorance and he warned this was just what was going on in his own time. The medieval passion for philosophy and theology had been beaten back again in the modern era. The complexity of medieval scholastic theology did not bother Lewis. Rather, as we see in his comments on Dante, he found it beautiful and convoluted in its pursuit of difficult truths. What we see in Lewis's harsh judgment on the humanists conveys a sense of the value of the medieval pursuit of truth. The organizing, the codifying, the building up of systems, sorting out and tidying up that Lewis described appreciatively to his Cambridge students in the lectures that would become the book The Discarded Image. Lewis wished we could have something like the medieval's bookish intense love of system again. So. Bearing in mind our theme, the unity of faith and reason, let's now turn to those medieval sources, especially those scholastic theologians of the 12th and 13th century that Lewis took it upon himself to defend. Anselm, Abelard, Aquinas, and others, and I don't know why all their names start with A, but that seems to be the case. These thinkers brought together faith and reason, love and logic, the spiritual and the material in a breathtaking synthesis that delved into the Bible for wisdom about our life with God. As complex as the issues they addressed sometimes were, theirs was never a merely abstract pursuit of truth. Their efforts and the understanding that came from them birthed such cultural institutions as the university, the hospital, and the research laboratory. This description of medieval thinkers may surprise us today. Many modern Protestant Christians still assume that medieval people were ignorant haters of knowledge who believed in a flat earth and were sitting around waiting for the enlightenment to happen so they could finally crawl out of the darkness and into the clear light of reason. In order to get back to the genius of medieval theology, we need first to overcome the stereotype that medieval people were, well, stupid. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. One story in this myth of medieval stupidity is the one that insists that before Columbus, Europeans believed nearly unanimously, as I said, in a flat earth. A belief allegedly drawn from certain biblical statements and enforced by the medieval church. This myth, for it was a myth, actually seems to have had its origins with the philosophes of the Enlightenment era and then was perpetuated by the 19th century American author Washington Irving, who flagrantly fabricated evidence for the flat earth belief in his four volume history of Columbus. It was then picked up and widely disseminated in 20th century America by a prickly president of Cornell University, Andrew Dixon White and others. The truth is that it's almost impossible to find an educated person after Aristotle died 322 BC, who doubted that the earth is a sphere. In the Middle Ages, you couldn't emerge from any kind of higher education, whether in a cathedral school, a university, or a local monastic school, and there were more and more who had access to that kind of training by the end of the period, without being perfectly clear about the earth's sphericity and even its approximate circumference. Quite contrary to the myth of medieval stupidity, medieval thinkers valued reason highly seeing it as the image of God in humankind. They thus insisted that such an amazing gift as reason not be squandered or neglected, but used appropriately in the service of the giver. And so putting reason into the service of faith, they set out to understand their God, themselves, and their world in rational terms. Since reason is our surpassing gift from God, They used it as one would use a treasured instrument. Think of a Stradivarius violin. How would that inspire you? When I was at school, I got to play. I fiddle around with uh, improvisation on piano. I was at Oberlin College for a couple of years. They had Steinway Grands in every practice room. And I would play stuff on those that I couldn't play anywhere else. This is how medieval saw reason as this beautiful, highly crafted, precious instrument. And they felt it was their duty to God to use it well with great passion, care, and discipline. But this isn't the end of the story about how medieval thinkers viewed and used reason. Since certain aspects of God seemed beyond reason, again, the Trinity, the incarnation, the resurrection are just three, tension and controversy did arise. From the second century through the medieval period, and more urgently once the scholastic movement began in the 12th century, faithful Christians argued about how much of a role reason should be given. One thing became clear early on. Good theology could not be done with reason alone in the realm of pure abstraction or logic chopping. Put in positive terms, this meant that reason and faith must be held together. The appearance of the two together, in fact, I think was the hallmark of orthodoxy. Their separation was the hallmark of heresy. Shortly before the opening of the medieval era, in 451 AD, at Chalcedon in Asia Minor, one of the few councils accepted today as authoritative still by all three major confessions of Christianity, formulated its famous four fences. In a simple yet profound statement, that gathered group of teaching pastors, for that's what the bishops were, insisted that Christians are bound to speak of Jesus as, and I'm quoting the the Chalcedonian statement, One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, and here's the four fences, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. These four careful analytical exceptions, the withouts, comprised a reasoned set of fences that protect within them the mystery of the relationship of Christ's human and divine natures but they do not presume to intrude into that mystery with some positive rational definition of that relationship. All right, so, pause, you might be thinking, the relationship of Christ's two natures, what a silly thing to talk about in the first place. They had nothing else to do. Why on earth would they bother to argue or hold a council on that? What you might not remember is that since the faith was still quite young in those days, and since it was based not on a clearly laid out manual of belief, but rather on a whole bunch of different books of stories and testimonies and poems and law and history, plenty of matters related to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were still up for debate and discussion. If you imagine some pristine early orthodoxy in which every aspect of the gospel was clearly laid out and rationally understood, you're painting a golden age picture that never actually existed. In fact, there were groups of Christians at that moment, the fifth century cusp of the middle ages, who did try to provide such a positive, rational definition of how the human and divine natures of Jesus fit together. And they were causing quite a bit of confusion among the faithful, the ordinary faithful. One group said that the divine nature completely swallowed up and absorbed the human nature of Christ. But then how can we truly say that Jesus shared our humanity? Another said that Jesus was a sort of hybrid with the mind of God and the body of man. But that's not much better. Was he then faking it when he said he shared our temptations and our suffering? For no one believed that God in his divine nature could be tempted or experience pain. Yet another group speculated that the two natures took turns animating Jesus so that when the divine nature was in the driver's seat, Jesus healed and walked on water. When the human was in charge, he didn't know when the end times would happen or he wept in the garden and asked God if there was any other way to save the world besides the cross. I had a teacher that called this werewolf Christology. But this too seems a distortion of the scriptural witness. By making their measured rational statement on the matter, the Chalcedonian pastors went only as far into reasoned explanation as they felt they could go to prevent or avoid those heretical interpretations while preserving that witness of scripture. They did insist that scripture does not support confusion, change, division, or separation between Christ's two natures. But at the same time, they, refined, they again refrained from defining precisely the relationship between those natures, because scripture had not spoken there. No mistake, the Chalcedonian definition, reasoned as it is, com- com- uh, yeah, preserves within it a complete mystery and a complete paradox. Because what it affirms is logically impossible. If Jesus was absolutely and completely both 100% one thing, divine, and 100% another thing, human, then we have a phenomenon which, in the realms of logic, physics, mathematics, is simply impossible. The math doesn't work. The statement just has to be taken on faith. So, the gathered pastors of Chalcedon specified again only as far as they felt scriptural revelation allowed, but not so far as to overexplain by forcing the mystery of the two natures into a single logical box. This was reason and faith joined together. Reason serving faith, but not overwhelming or dictating faith. One more example. Centuries later, in the intellectually fertile period from 1000 to 1300 AD, known as the High Middle Ages, the scholastic theologians applied reason to faith in the same cautious manner. Not to make too clear that which God had made obscure, but to do their best to understand the things of God without smoothing over their sometimes irreducibly puzzling or paradoxical nature. I'll actually bring forward two quick illuminating examples of this reason-serving faith approach. First example is the doctrine of transubstantiation promulgated by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 A.D. This explanation of how the Eucharist, the communion works, extends the Chalcedonian definition that one person, Christ, can indeed be both 100% God and 100% human to a nuanced piece of Aristotelian scientific reasoning on how the same sort of this and also that reality can be true of the Eucharistic elements. In other words, transubstantiation tries to explain, in terms accessible to the scientific understanding of the day, the mystery of the real presence of Christ in the elements of communion, which had been the belief of the ancient church. At issue here, again, is not Christ in his two natures, but the food elements of the Eucharist and their two natures. Essentially, the church has believed since its earliest centuries that the bread and the wine are at the same time 100% bread and wine and 100% the body and blood of Christ. This ancient doctrine of the real presence of Christ is based on the assumption that at the Last Supper, Christ really means it when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. One might guess that if you've believed one mystery, the Chalcedonian one of the perfect coexistence of the divine and human nature within Christ, It sets you up to believe another, the perfect coexistence of both of those natures within the material substances of the bread and the wine. And again, transubstantiation is an attempt to explain this in more rational scientific terms, at least what was rational and scientific in that day, without destroying the paradox. It says that the accidents, the attributes of color, taste and feel and smell of the bread and wine are preserved while the essence of the elements become the real body and blood of Christ. Now for many who disagree with transubstantiation, this explanation seems an unwarranted application of Aristotelian science to the mystery of the doctrine of the real presence. But we need to understand what's going on. When this piece of scientific explanation about accidents and essence is applied to the Eucharist, it's applied not to erase the mystery that the bread and wine are also the body and blood of Christ. A statement that again, however you want to interpret it, did come from the lips of Jesus, but to protect it while also trying to give some satisfaction to our God-given reason. And that indicates the role, again, that reason plays in theology in the medieval period. It seeks not to explain away the paradoxes of the faith, but rather indeed to protect those paradoxes and mysteries as much as possible. As as in so many other areas of medieval faith, this blend of reason, paradox, and mystery is not, by the way, just a Catholic thing in the technical sense, more precise sense, Roman Catholic. It is a Protestant legacy too particularly concerning this matter of the Eucharist, the desire to preserve the mystery of the real presence of Christ in the elements and to have some sort of reasonable explanation for how that can happen is also found in different ways in the doctrines of the three root Protestant traditions, Lutheran, Reformed, and Anglican, each in its own way. Now, our second example of this weaving together of reason and faith comes from the teachings of a thinker some call the father of scholastic theology, Anselm of Canterbury, 1033 to 1109. In particular, his reasoned explanation of the bloody scandal that was the crucifixion. If you're a thoughtful Christian or a thoughtful non-Christian considering the claims of the Christian faith, then you've likely wondered about this yourself. This is maybe an even harder nut to crack than the paradox of Christ's simultaneous identity as fully human and fully divine. It may in fact be the greatest paradox imaginable. For what the Bible teaches about the atonement for humanity that the second person of the Trinity accomplished through dying at human's hands is not just incongruous. Why would an all-powerful God return, uh, choose to redeem his human creatures in this bloody and ignominious way? No, it's far worse than that, logically speaking. Because what the story of the crucifixion claims is this, that the divine being God, the only being who fully owns his own being eternally, so to speak, not owing to any parent or creator in time, entered the stream of time, lived within time, and then ceased, as all time-bound creatures do, to exist at least on earth as a creature. Anselm, a master of dialectic, that is the rational investigation of disputed opinions, presented his elegant argument in his still influential Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. By the way, when I say still influential, let that sink in. This is, you know, a thousand years ago. So the shelf life of the teachers of the church seems to have some longitude to it. In the mode of reverent faith-seeking understanding, he asked this same question. Why should we credit this story of atonement in which the eternal maker of all things undergoes a typically bloody, painful human birth in a dirty, cold stable, lives a difficult, sporadically persecuted life, and finally allows himself to be subject to an extra legal proceeding, declared a criminal, be nailed to a cross, and die. Couldn't God have achieved our redemption in a less implausible, not to say illogical way? Now Anselm does not make the story rationally consistent by cutting off some part of the revelation. By doing that is the sort of the thing that the early heretics did in order to get rid of the tension between God's perfect divinity and his abject death. For example, Anselm doesn't solve the conundrum by saying, "Well, God didn't really die." because he never really had a human body, only the appearance of one, which is an explanation that some had tried to give early on, the docetist heresy. Nor does Anselm veer to the other possible explanation. Well, somebody did die, but it was someone who was less than God, the very special man, Jesus, the Arian heresy. Instead, Anselm reasons from the structures of social understanding around him. He seeks in those cultural materials an explanation that will satisfy his hearers without destroying the mystery. The explanation he hits upon is that God's honor, like that of a feudal king, he was in the period of feudalism after all, had been offended and diminished by the original sin of his human subjects. And that this terrible transgression must be addressed through some act of satisfaction that restores the honor of the king. While avoiding resolving the mystery towards docetism or Arianism, Anselm retains it and explains it through the reasonable cultural metaphor of satisfaction, working out the mystery in elegantly logical language so the people of his age could understand it. Now, Anselm's explanation of the atonement does not erase the central mystery that the undying, fully divine God died. The biblical paradox is not disposed of. Just as the Chalcedonian definition uses reason to retain the paradox of the two natures of Christ and the doctrine of the transubstantiation used reason to retain the paradox of bread and wine that is somehow also Christ, Anselm uses reason to retain the scriptural paradox of the God-man who dies while asking how we can understand, at least in part, what God is doing through the atonement of Christ. Well, what can we learn from the examples of Chalcedon and Anselm about how to keep faith and reason together in our own interpretation of scripture and perhaps in our wider faith? Of course, neither Chalcedon's statements on the two natures of Christ nor Anselm's on the atonement is the last word on the subject. Soon after Anselm, for example, came Peter Abelard with another also scripturally based explanation of the atonement that took as its central metaphor not the correction of a slight to a feudal Lord's honor, but the compassionate action of a grieving father willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for his children so they would be emotionally impacted by their father's sacrifice and return to him. Such a story, for example, as we have in the parable of the prodigal son. And when John Calvin, years later, returned to Anselm's explanation, he reworked some of those ideas for his own time in a penal substitutionary theory that seems less feudal and more purely biblical and is still hugely influential in 21st century Protestant preaching around the world. What this suggests is that while we draw wisdom from tradition, as the medievals did, every new generation and every new culture needs to do its own careful and sensitive work of reasoning with scripture. While doing so, we could do much worse than follow the example of the scholastic exegetes, who themselves, following the example of the fathers at Chalcedon, set out to explore what may be explored with the wonderful, precious gift of reason, but insisted on doing so within the bounds of the irreducible mysteries, presented in the pages of the Bible. Now to end where we started. Medievals, as we've seen, kept faith and reason together, using the gift of reason, but within the limits of mystery and community. Unlike modern immediatist evangelicals, they assume that while the created world and the story of salvation participate in the reasonableness of a rational God, nonetheless, again, we each still see through a glass darkly. So no individual Christian can know the thoughts of God clearly through the power of our own individual mind. This is why God's Holy Spirit has worked through the mediation of the whole community of saints, bequeathing us truth in the traditions that preserve the mysteries of our faith as well as in scriptures understood through reason. And this is why we must be careful not to allow ourselves to flatten or erase those mysteries handed down to us by insisting that our reason allows us to see clearly into all God's truth. Thank you.